1: I am really excited about some of the stories I'm able to tell through my company, Voice Locket. It. It's at voicelocket.com. And I am telling the stories of founders of family owned and operated businesses, sometimes multi generational businesses. And it's really interesting because it's always personal. It's not just business, it is personal. So I hope you'll check us out, Voice Locket. .com Now the show
2: Do I have second thoughts on the choices I've made and how I've parented? Oh, 100%. Of course. But becoming a parent? Oh, no. I I mean, I prayed for this.
3: This is in her words. A podcast from manlistening.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard.
1: Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I met this week's guest, Alina Duran, at a wonderful summit that was really more pep rally, dance, yoga. It was a blast, Um, called the Grab Life by the Goals. Uh, summit for where our squad, our business squad, we share a lot of time, we share reflections about happiness, what makes us happy, what makes us passionate about our work. Uh, Alina Duran is an expert in business operations strategy and execution. She's an executive coach and a leadership coach and she's the real deal. She's a graduate of NYU's Stern School of Business and she came to us from New York City. And we were all over the map about her values, her passion, and her amazing life as an immigrant from the Ukraine, as a girl. You'll hear, you'll hear Alina Duran. Where were you born?
2: Ah, I was born in Kiev, Ukraine.
1: (laughs) Who were your parents? I mean, they go back forever in Kiev?
2: Oh well, forever is um, we we are of um, of Jewish descent, so forever is uh, can be defined in a variety of ways. But (laughs) so how many hundred years? (laughs) Exactly, it's exactly (laughs) right. So my family has been um, in in the key of Poland area because you know during some of the years the, the borders shifted a bit, but my family has been in that region. Probably for hundreds, a few hundred years. Um, you know, my twenty three and me says that I am ninety seven percent Ashkenazi Jewish. So um, I assume my family has been in that general region for quite some time.
1: Wow. Yeah. How many memories do you have of Kiev? How old were you when when you all left?
2: I was um, I was almost eleven, so I, I was pretty clear. I have quite a few memories. You know, I my I I memories start at right before I was two years old. I have very early first memories, you know, and for years I thought it was a, a dream. I didn't think that it was an actual memory. And years later, I came to my mom and I shared with her that I was having this recurring vision and it must have been a fantasy, but this is what I saw. I actually remember my grandmother who passed away by the time I was two and i remember i have some some intimate memories with with her very personal very specific memories of like the room where i was who was in the room you know i remember a doctor was there with like a shiny round thing on his forehead and that was very interesting to me and i remember myself babbling
1: (laughs) did you grow up speaking what language till age 11
2: so Russian was the primary language you know because this was this was at a time when Ukraine was uh, part of the former Soviet Union actually Ukrainian was taught starting second grade.
1: Can you still speak Russian?
2: I can I can. My vocabulary is definitely stronger in, in English um it's it's a grown-ups vocabulary. my Russian vocabulary is pretty stunted at you know at, to the age that, that I came to America at.
1: What did your parents do? Sort of, where did you fit in the society there? Oh,
2: you know, it's it's quite a shift. It's an immigrant story. So, you know, my my parents uh, went to you know wonderful universities and had great you know positions, um, and and then when we came to America, they, you know, it was a major downgrade in uh, in pay. And and in and in, and in work from you know they they sort of went to uh, far lower paying, um, making ends meet survival survival based types of jobs.
1: So what did they do over there, and then what did they do here?
2: So my mom used to be an economist, and when we came to America, she was a, a bookkeeper. My dad was a mechanical engineer, and uh, originally back there, and when we came here, he was. Painting houses and walls, and he then went on to work for a a hotel and help uh, repair repair hotel rooms and do uh, room maintenance. It's very, very different.
1: Why did they leave?
2: Ah, uh, um, religious persecution opportunities for for me and my brother mainly. Um, that's that's it for our future, for our safety. We we came to America under a uh, political refugee designation.
1: Because you were Jewish. Yeah.
2: Correct. Correct. And I you know I, I I haven't shared this with friends in a while, but I it's still it's so surreal to even say it out loud what I'm about to share. On our passports, in the nationality section, there was a nationality section. For us, it would say Jewish. But my I could have a next door neighbor who and we're both born and raised in Kiev, Ukraine. If they're not Jewish, if they're Christian, it will say Ukrainian. So it, it's, it's like really you're simple. not a
1: full citizen. It's like That's you're right. you're That's other. Right. You're other You are
2: other. You are other and you are other. And that was I was reminded of that in you know in, in some of the anti-Semitism that we experienced. I experienced one particular incident that was pretty acute.
1: What was um, that?
2: Where a, a boy punched me um, in fourth grade and called me a name that I cannot say out loud, but it was it's a specific term that's extremely uh, it's deeply offensive, uh, specifically reserved for, for for the Jewish people and and then he told me to go back to my blankety blank Israel. Well, I I've never been to Israel, nor have my parents you know this was the only country i knew so it's 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 an interesting experience you're trying to explain like this is your home but you're not fully fully home
1: what was your reaction as a kid when that happened
2: uh, i i've never had a reaction like that probably or or before or since i he punched me in the chest and it hurt so much that in that moment, I um something like this adrenaline was pumping through my blood, and I lost feeling of my body, and it was almost like another person took over, and my hand formed a fist and I punched him back. And I have never in my life punched anyone ever. Um, I don't know how that happened, but it was this instinct this knee-jerk reaction like it you know it right in the chest it hurt so bad my fist made a you know my hand made a fist boom punched him did you tell your
1: parents about it
2: i don't recall i think i did i think i did i it's amazing i have certain memories are so lucid and specific and and other memories are they're just blank after that point it, it was real. It was something. I don't recall being detained. Perhaps because I was a girl. Perhaps because he he would have been too ashamed.
1: Did you um, arrive in the U.S.?
2: We touched down in New York City in the evening, um, August third, nineteen eighty nine, and it was ex- incredibly surreal. It's this giant. I think it was a Boeing seven eighty seven, a huge plane. We touched down. And it was like my senses, my everything I was hearing and seeing, it was this this different universe. People are dressed differently, they're speaking differently. Um, it was incredibly surreal. From from New York City, we um hopped on a plane, we got a plane to Philadelphia. And that's where my family and I settled, um, in the northeast Philadelphia, right on the edge of the city, right on the cusp of suburbs. Um it was it was incredible. It was really incredible. Like seeing this melting, you know, melting pot of all these people who look different. Because you know, back where we lived in Kiev, it was very homogeneous. Very, very like I looked, you know, I I was pretty visibly Jewish. Um that's what does how that mean? homogeneous everyone looks white everybody looks very similar they dress similar they look similar we came to america and there's all this variety diversity and i'm seeing all these all these human beings that physically look i've never seen people that look like this and this different ever in my life until that point so it was it was incredible in a language that i totally did not understand
3: when
1: yeah. you were a little kid what did being Jewish, we're Jewish. What did that mean? And what does it mean now?
2: Um, when I was a child, I understood that um, we are to keep it secret. Like we do, you do not speak about being Jewish. You just don't. Um, I knew that we light a candle on the anniversary of someone's death. I knew that we don't eat pork. I, I knew that we bury our loved ones in the Jewish part of the cemetery. Um. And I knew that there weren't really synagogues available to attend. Um, you know, my, my family um, wasn't didn't really have a chance, it was a different life, you know, to be observant and uphold certain traditions. So it was much more about sort of survival. Um, when we came to America, I encountered, um, you know, I had no Jewish education, no formal education and when i met um you know jewish kids in philadelphia who would i would attend like their bat mitzvahs bar mitzvahs it was entirely foreign it's this different world where these these are jewish kids who grew up around other jewish kids and they never experienced incidents like i had and so it was um it was a different world very very different experience with it um didn't really think about it much when i was a teenager uh, i went through a period where i considered myself um I thought well for a while maybe I'm an atheist then I thought maybe I'm agnostic um and in present day I I see Judaism as a slice of me it is it doesn't define all of me it is most certainly a part of my identity um I am interested in learning about history you know the history of the Jewish people um as far as you know gleaning wisdom I glean it from, from everywhere. And, you know, the work that I do to serve humans um, in the work that I do now, that's my calling. It's, I draw on any and every tool that I've ever used and any bit of wisdom. I don't, you know, it. I am uh, it, it really irrespective of the source. It can come from Judaism. It can come from Buddhism. It can come from, you know, an incredible book that I've read. It can come from a friend or, you know, divine inspiration. Um, so,
1: we could talk about this all hour, but I do want to know what did Judaism <laughs> or being Jewish mean to your parents?
2: You know, I, I think to my parents, the, the, their main concern was um, survival and safety. That is, those are the lenses that they that they view view it through. Like there are very there are traditions that our family upheld for a long time, and they are very warm, personal, intimate memories that they associate with that. Um, when those family members, you know, passed. Like that's, that, that's how the religion, that's how Judaism is memorialized. I think, you know, and I don't want to be careful not to speak on my parents' behalf. This is, this is their child's impression of what they think um, and how they see it. But it's, that was memorialized. Like Judaism to them is how their loved ones practiced it, you know, what they did how kind they were, how good to each other they were, how warm and caring they were, how giving they were, um, you know, being very family oriented, sort of like sacrificing for your kids and and wanting bigger, better, more for your kids than you ever had a chance to have, you know, in happiness and health, um, finding people who who love them. When we came to America, you know, my my mom who used to wear a star of David, Um, she took it off and she kind of didn't want, like that was, her job was done, right? Like they, they brought us to safety. They brought us to America and that was it. Um, And they really embrace people of all backgrounds. So my parents' main focus is, um, you know, when I was dating, dating boys in college and after, they really the lens that they viewed them through is not is this a Jewish boy or not? it's is he good for you? Is he good to you? Is he kind um irrespective of the background and that's that's how they live. They really they're really about you know, kindness and goodness um they're not big into organized religion.
1: how important with those young men was um will he provide for you?
2: Mm, no, I was actually um and i'm so grateful my my parents raised me with this core value that like thou shall never depend on a man financially you Love can it. depend on him you can depend on him emotionally you can need him emotionally you may never need a man for money you will never stay with someone because you need to because you're financially insecure that can never happen
1: what a great and gift
2: it is indeed a gift that's It was so wise and I'm so grateful and it's absolutely the value, you know, one of the many values I hope to pass on to my daughter,
3: you know, and and my my son as well.
2: There's so much goodness that that can be gleaned. And I, you know, my lens, the way I view religion for, for myself personally is if it's almost like in a menu sort of sense, like a pick and choose I will pick and choose the wisdom. And if it fits and it resonates, I'm so grateful. I'm not taking it as a all all or nothing. That is absolutely not how I view it for myself.
1: How'd you learn how to speak English?
2: <laughs> um, my parents bought me the Sony Walkman wireless headphones when we came to America. And um, my dad hoisted a hook above my bed. Because I would listen to them when I would come, like all day, I would listen to music. So I would listen to radio, to songs on the radio, and I would almost fall asleep in them. And and as I was falling asleep, I would take them off and hang them on the hook above my bed. Um, So that was one way, this total immersion. So radio songs, that's one. And the second way What kind
1: of music? What are we talking about?
2: Oh, pop, like pop radio.
1: Who'd you love?
2: I didn't even know what I was listening to. I mean, this was uh, New Kids on the Block, Paul Abdul, like everything that was on in 1989, Def Leppard. I was just, I couldn't understand a thing they were saying when I started listening to them. Um, I remember (laughs) finding out the name of the band, New Kids on the Block. And I said, I will never, ever learn how to say that whole thing. That's such a mouthful. That's so many words. Um, The second way that I learned English was actually listening to Peter Jennings on ABC news at night for some reason, I felt like this is standard, um, non-regional kind of neutral. Nobody knows where you're from. He's from Canada. Okay. That's right. And it's from Canada. He's from somewhere. That's right. He is. Everyone is from somewhere and he's not from the U S. Um, that's right. I listened to a Canadian (laughs) broadcaster, um, to, to learn how to speak and sort of modeled modeled my cadence after him. So that's that's how. And I, I picked it up very quickly. Um, I attribute that speed to my musical background. I played the piano as a child, you know, right up until we came to America. I really think that impacted... I think it has a huge impact on learning new languages and taking them in. And, you know, I started speaking within three weeks of coming to the States and without an accent. I just... I started speaking
1: you still play
2: i don't and it is a goal this year one of my 2023 goals is to restart that love um i have a, a piano at home an electric piano it's like a fancier keyboard and i am i am determined i've started playing around on the keys
1: oh that's beautiful what kind of a student were you like in high school
2: you know, and in high school, uh, there was a fire lit under me, a sense of urgency. Um, that urgency came after my middle school experience of not doing as well and feeling this sense of shame at you know eighth grade graduation that I didn't win a single award. I watched all these kids come up on the stage, my family watching in the audience, and they watched me not get a single award. So I have to preface the high school experience with the eighth grade graduation experience because that memory, that sense of shame burned so hard into my core that by the time I started ninth grade, I was supremely motivated. In high school, it was, you know, you are your, your family's hope. You you better do well. You better perform. You better do your best. There's no messing around. This is it. College is next. Let's go. So I um, that was the focus. I was quickly moved from general education classes to what was called in the high school Mentally Gifted program, which, which sounds, I don't know if it's if it's a name that's still given, but it was in a Philadelphia public high school, George Washington High School, um, was moved into uh, Mentally Gifted, which is uh, the New York City version is gifted and talented, but I was asked to take an IQ test and based on you know certain results you had to pre- place in a particular percentile, Then you get to take these accelerated courses. So I took advanced placement, um, mentally gifted, but I was, I participated in a lot of extracurricular activities that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, A lot of leadership, like it was a drastic change from middle school. There were, there was a lot of leadership, a lot of just academic excellence, Um, whether I liked the topic or not, whether I was into it, whether it came naturally did not matter. I was very clear on, like, I will get an A and that's that. Um, I loved AP politics. I thoroughly enjoyed arguing with my teacher. I think most of the class was kind of quiet. There was me and a couple other kids that would really get into it and get into political discussions. I really, really enjoyed it. So um, I thought about politics as a future career at the time. And um, politically, I was an outlier um in the school and in the classroom for sure and definitely on the uh, on a different side of the spectrum from my teacher's political views and uh we would have these arguments in front of the whole class and <laughs> that was fun um it was fun to win too i um <laughs> i was pushed into gently lovingly pushed by a teacher to uh into becoming involved in the debate team and i was very self-conscious about at that time like speaking in front of other people what if i mispronounce a word right this, this immigrant thing like i don't know english i'm going to mess something up everyone's going to laugh at me everyone's going to make fun of me and the teacher suggested well why don't you just come and watch just come and watch and i came up and watched and she said just come and watch one more time just just come and watch and that was it i could not let go um I became it was a, it was a, it was a great memory. I became a uh, captain and um, an undefeated champion. had a, was honored by the Philadelphia Bar Association. I was like first female captain in the school's history. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> like, I loved making boys cry. My opponents cry. <laughs> it was fun to you know you and you play clean you use arguments, you're playing within bounds. It's purely about the topic that we're assigned to debate and to have this logic to be able to deliver it in this sharp, crisp way. And they, you know, if I ever got them to a point where like they they, they had nothing, there was just silence and they would get emotional. I think today I would be compassionate um, and more and more empathetic. At the time, I
0: was just very excited about the win.
1: Went for the jugular. <laughs>
0: Within rules,
1: i'd be remiss maybe it's the journalist in me but um how much do you follow the war in ukraine
2: Mm. i followed it much more closely at the onset and and for better or worse less closely now Um, it can be
1: overwhelming is the reason it can
2: it can i will you know I'll, i'll take a I'll peruse the news. I'll take a look at what's happening. It's it's painful. Like loss of life is painful, you know, and, and a fight between two countries where people are so very similar in so many ways. It's like, you know, North Carolina and Florida going to war.
1: I was thinking mainly of how often at any point in your life did you think, had my parents remained there, my fate, my pathway i would be here i would be doing this
2: oh if my parents didn't come here i mean i can't it's unimaginable i i I have i could can't imagine where i would have been if they didn't make that brave choice
1: are your parents still with us
2: they are thankfully
1: and they're close right
2: they are they are they live in the neighborhood um you know, we live near each other and it's by design, um, walking distance from each other. And it's its a gift. It's a blessing. Um, it's a blessing for me and for my kids.
1: Um, yeah. If someone asked you as an 18-year-old leaving high school, graduating, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have said?
2: I would have said a politician. Yeah. still
1: kind of wish it's not too or, late it's not too well,
2: late I switched from politician to um, accounting uh <laughs> because the switch was um you know, when pushed came to shove I needed to make a choice and the choice that I viewed I needed to make it's the only way I could think it's and I I refer to it as the immigrant mentalities to survive right a safe choice a choice that is economy proof you will always have a job people always need an accountant and so I I that's what I chose to do. Totally incompatible with my wiring.
1: Where did you go to college?
2: I went to uh, NYU Business School, uh, Stern Stern Business School at NYU. Uh,
1: did you uh, undergrad? Yes. And what was your major?
2: I I have a, a dual uh, a dual MS in uh, sorry dual BS in uh, in finance and accounting.
1: That's a damn good school.
2: It is. It is. It's a great school.
1: What'd you do after? What'd you do with that?
2: Uh, um, well, I um, I wanted to make sure that I kind of finished what I started, so to speak. Um, I, and on the accounting track, I pursued a, a, a CPA, Certified Public Accountant designation. So I started working at uh, Ernst & Young, which is one of the t- you know big four public accounting firms. And... I worked there for two years, three, almost three. Um, deeply grateful for the experiences. it's it's interesting. I knew I knew from the start, I knew before I graduated that it, it wasn't it wasn't what I was meant to do. It wasn't compatible with who I am. But the practical side of me, you know, pushed through the you will finish what you started. like you will get your CPA no matter what. And I did. um, um wonderful people, wonderful learning experiences, getting to go from, you know, company to company to company. Yeah. Um,
1: If you hit one of the big power balls and had two, $300 million after taxes and (laughs) other than play the piano, (laughs) as many as you wanted to, um, what would be your sort of passion?
2: Mm. Um, Uh, You know, (laughs) I think it would be related to what I'm actually doing now and doing more and more of now and perhaps doing it in, you know, delivering it in, in, in different ways that are a bit more removed from needing to, you know, to be financially secure because that would be taken care of. So perhaps it would be more adventurous, but it would be along the same line of, Raising, you know, awareness and compassion in this world and creating, helping people, um, have more empathy, more kindness to, toward each other, see each other as, as human beings, understand their impact on others, um, understand intentionality, the tools that they have within them to be able to access their inner wisdom, what they've always had and maybe didn't know that they have these, these gifts, this resourcefulness, um, it's it it being in service of humans and helping, helping to do that. um, And how are you doing
1: that now? What are you doing now?
2: Um, I'm an executive coach, a leadership coach. And, you know, my 20 some years in the corporate world, working from, you know, mature startups to large uh, global enterprises, working with leaders. It's incredible. Working with one leader, I could make one leader, um, more aware kinder more intentional have a, a a a broader understanding of what they're doing how they're communicating who they're being how they're showing up you know it's it's incredible the transformation and the trickle-down impact that it has on so many other humans so not only for that leader to feel satisfied clear calmer um more uh just wiser, Wiser in 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 accessing their own inner resources.
1: Without naming names, yeah. tell me a story mm. of where <laughs> you you were the you were the Zen monk. You you smacked <laughs> him upside the head in just the right way, and you you saw uh, the light come on. You saw the uh, the epiphany, ah. the sartori, as they say in Zen. The moment of enlightenment. Uh, Sure. Tell me a fun story.
2: There's a a few of them. Well, here's one. Um, I was was working with uh, an executive and, and a couple teams where I was both solving. I was there for sort of solving business operations challenges within the company. And then I was also helping coach a couple teams and a couple uh senior executives. Not the person that I'm about to tell you, but this, this is how he became my client. Um, I, there were, ex- uh, there was, I noticed a huge gap in what the senior executive was expecting would happen when projects would be done and like what was happening versus what was actually happening when I would work with teams and find out, you know, these huge deltas like reality versus expectation and I noticed a, a, this trend. And so I knocked on his door and I said, do you have a f- few minutes? He said, yes. I said, um, I am going to share a few things with you. I closed his door, the, the door of his office. Said, I'm going to share a few things with you. They may be unpleasant for you to hear, but if I were you, I would love if someone shared the following with me. Are you ready? And uh, he said, oh, Yeah. And I said, well, you know, this, this big project that that's happening that like the board is looking at closely, that's really, yeah, that's not getting done for another two months. It's a huge, huge difference in what he was expecting. He said, what, what do you mean? What the, you know, what the F, like what happened? I said, well, there's more. I was like, that other project is also delayed by about a month. Here's another thing. You know, you have this team working on this initiative like, do you also know that there's another team over there in this part of the company working on a similar initiative? Like, we are wasting human energy and time. Did you know that this is happening? It's like, oh my God, I had no idea. Why doesn't anybody tell me? Why don't they tell me? And I said, they're afraid of you. So well, what? What? Who the fuck is afraid of me? I was like, most of everybody. He's like, well, why are they afraid of me? Me? Why are they afraid of me? That was a response. I said, "Well, would you like to unpack that?" <laughs> he, he said, "Yeah." Yeah. I said, "Want me to set up a meeting and start?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I do." So, we, that's how that started and became, you know, a series of regularly cadenced meetings where we worked on this person's, you know, self-awareness and understanding of why Why are you the last to hear the news? Why are you hearing the news from your teams when they must share it? Why are they so fearful? Wouldn't you be better off if you were a leader who inspired people where people felt psychologically safe enough with you to come to you and tell you, you know how we're working on this? It's not going the way we thought it would. And this other thing, it's not effective at all, right? it's, it's, It's a win on every level possible, right? It's a win for the employees because... They're much. It, it it makes them much more personally invested in the business and care, and they see the impact that they're having. They're witnessing it regularly. It creates this trust and comfort, and for the company, it can react so much faster and save money and you know, headache and you know the, the lack of innovation that can happen in a culture where people are fearful of a leader. And also where, where they feel like they need to have face time and these formalities with a leader instead of focusing on substance. Like, what are you actually doing when your derriere is in that seat? Are you really being productive? Like, and are so you often we're, on- we're
1: tempted to call these a, a problem of communication and to look at wording or delivery or mm. whatever, where there's something behind that in there being.
2: Is. Oh, in yes. being
1: and in, in neural yes. pathways and who we actually are and
2: Oh, absolutely. It's this, you know, it's programming. It's, that's right. It's, it's neuro pathways and patterns that are formed for years and years and years from childhood to present day. It's, you know, it's unhealed, you know, childhood trauma. It's what happened two years ago that never left you. It's, it's all the saboteurs that are speaking to you in the room with you and saying things to you, you know, maybe
1: internal,
2: the voices in
1: your head. The sometimes, they literally,
2: sometimes they're external and they're like a fellow members of the board or the C-suite. Sometimes they're like literal voices speaking to you. But in this case, you're right. Exactly. I'm referring to the invisible ones, the saboteurs that are, you know, spirits of the past and all our fears and all the negative thoughts and the stories we tell ourselves that keep us from, from really accessing who we can be and what's really possible. Yeah, absolutely. So from that work came, you know, how do you message information? What's your intent? Who are you showing up as? Right? How do you create this trust? How do you establish it when it wasn't there before?
1: Can you be candid? Can you be straight with people?
2: That's right. Well, how do you want to show up? Right? What is the right answer for you? Why are you seeing what is it that you want in your communication from employees? Right, I, of, that...
1: I have I have a buddy who says, I don't want to be a person of integrity. That's hard. I want to be thought of as a person with integrity. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's very funny. Uh, <laughs> if you substitute the word leader, you know, I don't want to do the hard things to be a leader because people are going to be mad. Um, I could get fired if I tell the truth. Um, And if I don't place it in the white, but even if I do, I could get fired. So what would you say is the difference between what we think of when we say leader and what a real leader actually Mm -hmm. does?
2: I think the authenticity that teams around that leader can sense even if they don't use the perfect like they're not perfect, they're going to stumble. they're a human being.
1: they're not faking it. they don't have it.
2: They're 100%. authentic and real and they're with them and they're they they have a self-awareness to know that people they hire should be compensating for what they lack right that they are going to have credit where it's due with honesty and authenticity, not you know, couching and I call it peacocking. Like you know, well,
1: f- fluffing I, feathers and. I was recommended a book called "The Fifteen Principles of Conscious Leadership," which I yes. started reading. You got it? You sitting yeah. there?
2: I have. Uh, it yeah, might have been you. The, the, yeah, the fifteen commitments of conscious leadership. <laughs>
1: fifteen um, commitments of conscious leadership, and what I took away from that is when <laughs> when the team fucks up, there's an obvious fuck up. Uh they own, first of all, their part of it. Um, it could be that 15 other people fucked up, but mm-hmm. they own their part.
2: Oh, 100. before
1: throwing the 15 people under the bus, they own their part. That's a leader.
2: A hundred percent. I was just discussing it with a fellow coach yesterday like humanizing yourself and showing others that you're holding yourself up to the same standards and that we all fuck up. It's not if we fuck up, it's what are we doing with the mistakes that we make? You know, it's it's data, it's information. We learn from them, we get back up, we, we try to do better, right? That's like the secret sauce is be real and just try to do better. And it could be so much simpler that way, right? Politics, all the energy that you don't need to expend on posturing on imagining on rumors on um you know the politics you can spend that time on creativity and doing work and helping your teammates and um innovation and something that i used to do as a leader myself when i had teams reporting to me is we used to our my team used to perform a a monthly a monthly process of creating uh, financial statements and then um presenting them to the executive team and, you know, talking about any what's changed, why, what we're expecting, or, you know, why um, why the variance, why worse, why better, um, what's behind each line item, that sort of thing. Um, and something that I did that worked beautifully was I instituted these post-mortem monthly sessions where I uh, did not allow my boss or his boss to attend. It was just me and my team. And in that room, every month, I would, we would talk about what went well and what can be done better. And when we talked about what can be done better, I would start with myself and say, here's what I screwed up this month. I'm going to start. I, I, like, I did not, I, this is what I'm going to be doing differently next month, right? So what did you fuck up? What are you doing differently? Or what did you fuck up? And here's how I'm thinking about doing it differently. Does anyone in the room have a better idea? I'd love and, to hear. And that
1: sets the tone. That allows that others sets, to say.
2: That's right. It opened the door to allow everyone to understand. We are not going to hide mistakes. The integrity is supreme. Is supremely important in, in you know, any work. But when you're creating financial statements for a company, that honesty is necessary. It's really necessary in every single part of the company. Every single part of our lives, really. That authenticity and honesty, um, but that vulnerability and creating that psychological safety, to say, yes, tell me about your fuck up. Go ahead. It's it's so easy. What did you fuck up? Okay. And wh- what did you? What are you doing differently? What's the adjustment? And part of the meeting also was to take that, what could be done better, with a plan that we would all align on by the end of that meeting, on how are we going to make it better in aggregate. Right. And now it could be seen externally to, you know, to the CEO, CFO, to um, to the board when they're viewing the financials. Like, did we create something faster? Are we creating something, you know, with um, more efficiently optimizing processes? Where can we do better and better? So we would use this time to create this iterative process where we just just kept getting better and better and better. Um, When
1: people told the truth.
2: Just tell the truth. Yeah, you're safe. Tell the truth. Help others. Be nice. And and you know, preferably like let's have some jokes and have fun. So that's what I used to say. I used to draw on a whiteboard two buckets. I still do when I work with teams. And one says helpful, and one says not. And that's it. Like, is this what bucket is this in? Is this helpful or not? So laughing or working are two great modalities. If we need to cry, go ahead. Because if it's helpful, do it. But coming in and like idle gossip, is 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 it is it helpful? Because if it's not, let's just skip. But telling a good joke is super helpful. Makes everybody feel great. So um, it's like.
1: I'll, I want to shift gears. Yeah. And feel free to tell me to fuck off if this is. <laughs> um,
2: Radical candor.
1: you're a cancer survivor
2: oh um yes i want to
1: talk about that
2: i mean we could we could brush over it. i'm very very fortunate um i had thyroid cancer in 2007 but i'm very very fortunate to that it was diagnosed so early and you know that surgery treated it and you know monitoring it ever, ever since but um I will share that. It's it, there's a lot of gratitude.
1: you said you were not terribly far from Chernobyl.
2: Well, Kiev is about a two hour drive from Chernobyl. um, and it happened when i was I was a child. And we Do were you attribute in the there.
1: cancer to Chernobyl.
2: I don't think I will ever know for one hundred percent for certain. Um, but I do recall on the tenth anniversary of Chernobyl on CNN, uh, there was a special, tenth anniversary special. and it talked about thyroid cancer being so common in in folks who lived not far, and especially at a younger age that I was. Um, and so that that that's the first time that I heard about it. i I had no idea for sure.
1: 2007, 16 years ago, you were a pretty young woman and you yeah. didn't have kids yet, did you?
2: That's right. This was before children.
1: And yeah. I'm wondering what, if any, way that shifted your view, mm. like your worldview, just having the diagnosis.
2: Um, It showed me very, very quickly that... Um, Life can change on a dime. It, it, that was an illustration. Like, see, that's how fast. Um, as far as worldview, um, I certainly felt grateful for the experience because it helped um, create a better filter in my life for what matters and what doesn't. I, I would love to tell you that that was the lesson I needed and that was it. No, I needed many, many, many more lessons. I continue to learn those lessons. Um, but that is what hardship can do, Like right? It can deliver this this gift of a uh, clarity, like what do what matters in my life? What's connected? What's part of why I'm here? What's fulfilling? And like what's bullshit? Toss that shit out the window. Who cares? Um, toss it aside. So, and another thing that it that it did for me was it sped up my decision to have kids. Like my I was I became much clearer on I knew I wanted children. The timing was very ambiguous. It was like, I know I want children as part of my life, as part of my experience on on earth in this lifetime. It was, I was expecting to have children later, a little bit older. When I was diagnosed and I came to the endocrinologist's office for our first visit, um, one of the first questions he asked me was, do you want to have children And having a doctor ask me that question, like sitting in a white robe, this is before I had the surgery, you know, to to remove the cancer's tissue. When he asked me that, um, it was like a life, a universe fast forward and like a smack. And I sat straight up and I said, yes, yes, I definitely do. Yes. Super clear. Like, yes, quick. There's no like, maybe, you know, my lifetime. Like, eventually. No, no, no. Yes.
1: You've (laughs) had experience that I will never really know what this is like. Not in this lifetime. And that is you go through this terrible, very, very intense pain. And then out comes this human being and they put it on your chest. What was that like?
2: (laughs) Oh, I am fortunate to have experienced it twice with my daughter and then my son um first time was absolutely like surreal and i kept saying to the doctor and the nurses in the room it's like do you understand that i am here as one person and i'm going to walk out with a whole human being and like i'm taking her home do you guys understand I'm like everyone. Do you understand? I was also on drugs, so that helped. <laughs> and I, I, said, I know you do this all the time, but this is just blowing my mind. And I, you know, I gave birth at NYU Langone Hospital, and I could see uh, the neighborhood where I live. I could see Rosewood Island from the window, and I said, Do you guys understand? Like, I'm gonna be there, like soon. With this, you're about to take out a person. Do you, this is insane. How does this work? So it was very, um, like, it was was an out-of-body experience. Like, I could not believe what just happened. Like, I'm holding a whole person. They have all the parts, all the parts that a human needs, thank God. They're just very little. And I'm looking at it. And the first thing I thought was, do I love this person? Do I love this? Because I'm a first-time mom. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what's happening. And then one of the nurses wanted to take her away to be tested. And then the first instinct I had was like this mama bear animalistic protective, like I will, like, I will hurt you if you hurt my child, I will do unspeakable things to a person. So this intense desire to, I didn't want anybody taking her for any exams without my supervision. I became like super protect instantly. It kicked in immediately. And then I realized, oh yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, I love her. I love her. I will mess people up for her, Mama Bear. Um, when I when the second was born, and he was laid on my chest, I was much more familiar with what was happening. Like I understood that there was a life, and this was my person, and you know he's he's one of my people coming into the world. And so I I um I got it. I understood it much better, and I felt like you know I didn't see you all this time, and now I see you. Hi, hi, it's me. It's me all this time. How are you? How's it going?
1: (laughs) I felt connected to the human family witnessing that. Mm. I felt like this is an ancient experience. And all of a sudden I was like, I'm in the club. (laughs)
2: That's (laughs) right.
1: I'm a fellow human.
2: Absolutely. The first thought I had when I brought my first child home was of the realization that Oh my God, I'm going to fuck this up. It's not if like, it's not if it's what like, cause it's impossible not to fuck up parenting. How do you not make mistakes? I was like, shit, shit. He's going to see everything I do. Right? Like the kids are going to see everything I do all the time. And I'm going to, how do you not make mistakes? Like crap. Oh my God. I, not only am I keeping it alive, which was brand. I didn't know how to, what to do with, with the baby logistically. But it was because I was one of the first friends to have a child, and you know, in of my New York friends, I only had like maybe one or two, and we didn't see each other regularly. So it's like, God, want to have to keep it alive, but then I have to be like all the things for it, and you know, it, be an example and model all this great stuff. But what if what if they see the not good stuff? And of course, they will. Like, spoiler alert like yes they will see you and you're not less glamorous and, and yes they will remember the less glamorous probably more frequently than they remember the, the best parts you know like the parts of me that my kids appreciate sometimes surprise me
1: ever have any regrets about being a mom
2: oh my god no no about becoming a parent Right. You're tied
1: down. You can't go to the Hamptons for the weekend. Oh,
2: I am so grateful. Oh, my God. Yes, of course, I have thoughts of like, oh, this would have been so fun. But no, there is no regrets. Do I have second thoughts on the choices I've made and how I've parented? Oh, 100 percent. Of course. But becoming a parent? Oh, no, I I mean, I prayed for this. I prayed for this. I wanted this. I'm grateful for it. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah.
1: If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this recording of digital audio, Ah. what is your legacy?
2: I, um, I hope to have left this world making people feel love and kindness showing people kindness and and love and goodness and helping people access more and more of that. That would be a wonderful legacy to have. If I can affect people this way, if I could serve, it's, it's, you know, it's a blessing. It's a responsibility. One I can't unsee what I saw in the work that I'm doing. I don't want to ever unsee what I saw and unfeel what I felt and what I feel. So now that I've seen it and felt it, it's I want to do more and more of it and impact more and more humans this way. That would be a that would be an amazing legacy. I hope my kids will know and feel that they were loved deeply. Yeah.
1: I think they do.
2: I hope. One can only hope. God
1: bless you. Thank you for making time.
2: (laughs) Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fun for me.
1: There is some talk of the Grab Life by the Gold Squad taking a little field trip, a little fun trip to NYC in the fall. you want to check that out. Uh, Lauren Widrick has been on this podcast, and uh, I know that I will see Alina Duran again. I know that our paths will cross. Alina, thank you so very, very much.
3: In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp-Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women.
1: A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported ManListening.com, the In Her Words podcast, and now VoiceLocket.com. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.